0: Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Boschard.
1: And I'm Matt Dixon.
0: And today there are no guests. Matt, I'm afraid we're oh. all out of friends. Oh, it, <laughs> it had to happen sometime. It had to happen at some point. <laughs> no, actually, it is just you and me today. Uh, we've lined up a whole bunch of new guests for next season. Yeah. But I thought we'd spend today a little bit talking about uh, a report that was released recently. Uh, that actually features you and me. We're in it. Yeah. As evidence. Uh, so nothing tickles an academic more when they're cited. So uh, the report was the Auger Review of Post-18 Education and Funding in England. Matt, do you want to tell us what is the Auger Review? So this was something that um, back in February...
1: 2018, uh, the then Prime Minister Theresa May announced in a speech that there'd be this wide ranging review into post 18 education uh, led by Philip Auger, uh, hence the name The Auger Review. So, Auger is a, uh, a leading author, a former city banker, uh, previously been a non executive director um, at the Department for Education. So, he's a very experienced uh, guy and he led a, a panel of reviewers. and. Uh, they're charged with looking at the entire post-18 education system. So not just kind of higher education, but further education and, and the whole system uh, post-18. And they were supposed to look at um, four main areas, look at okay choice in the system, look at uh, value for money, both for students and for taxpayers, uh, looking at access to the different routes through the post-18 system, and also skills provision, so thinking about, okay, what sort of skills do we need in, in the kind of modern economy? So that's, that's what they were going to do. And uh, here's the kicker, though. This is you can propose some changes, but they have to be cost-neutral, right? So we can't, okay. we're not going to spend any more money, but you can propose some ways of, of spending the money uh, differently to try and achieve better outcomes.
0: So that's quite a comprehensive remit, had there but sort of bounded within this idea of you know, rejigging rather than just asking yeah. for more cash, which, which I guess most people would do in a way. Um, so what did Olga and the panel do? So what they do with these sorts
1: of big uh, government-led reviews... Uh, they start off by putting out a call for ev- evidence. So this goes out to interested um, individuals and organizations. Uh, for people, anybody can submit evidence to the review that they think is important that the reviewer should take into account. And then once all this evidence is is gathered in, they start going through this evidence, and then they will set up a um, series of meetings and, and events to engage with uh, researchers, with academics, with other kind of stakeholders in the in the post eighteen education uh, landscape and then they collate all this evidence so it took you know it's taken quite a long time to do um, they collate all this evidence synthesize it and kind of write up a final uh, report and and a final set of recommendations and that ended up being a 216 page report uh, that came out um, at the end of May uh this year so they've you know they've taken more than a year to do this but i think that's fair yeah. enough given the amount of stuff that they've been doing yeah it's doing.
0: good it's good bedtime reading um just out of curiosity did you submit some evidence uh
1: i submitted something yeah, yeah. there's some evidence in there yeah that's yeah. too that's probably why
0: we're in it yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> like it found its way in there yeah. yeah i should also note that a lot of people we had on the program also submitted evidence and are also in it so I, this I is i think really that's right yeah. Yeah. yeah almost everybody i think almost, probably almost yeah. uh, almost, almost everybody. So um I guess let's have a look at some of these recommendations. I counted there's 53 of them. I suspect we don't have time to go through all 53. I don't think we have the time or no. the inclination <laughs> or uh, actually expertise it's yeah, you know, it very wide ranging yeah. everything. Let's go to some of the headline grabbing stuff what's important. So I think uh interestingly
1: the the review is about post 18 education, okay? So um, we think of higher education and also the kind of further education system. And one of the problems, I guess, and we've talked about this before on the show that um, further education is very much the poor relation of higher education. okay? Uh, and it has been, and this is a, a problem, and Orgo recommends you know, some measures to try and address that. But in terms of, okay, what are the headline recommendations? Well, the main headline that comes out is straight away to higher education. So this is the way the media tends to uh, work and pick up on these things. Higher education takes the headlines. Um, and... The most striking recommendation is the reduction in tuition fees, which are currently £9,250 per year. That's the maximum that can be charged, and most courses charge that. Uh, so the recommendation is to reduce that to £7,500 per year. That's the thing that straight off. That was kind of leaked a little bit as well This just before the report was coming out. People kind of knew this. This was the idea. It's going to be a cut in tuition fees.
0: Yeah, Well, I certainly know that within my university, and I think in a lot of other universities, we've been kind of, you know, awaiting that figure for a long, long time, trying to figure out how that will impact our own finances. But uh, leaving ourselves out of it, I mean, what do you think about this? I personally think it was kind of coming for a long time. This whole tuition fee debate is obviously underpinned by a lot of evidence, but also it's very politicized and it's very kind of emotional to many people. And uh, I think for quite a long time now, it's been kind of accepted by society that perhaps the government, previous government, and we as society went a little bit too far with uh, with this uh, with this number. And so a reduction was was kind of coming, almost no matter what. Do you think um, this number is justified? I mean, what what I mean, there's a bit more behind this 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 drop in the tuition fee, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. I think you're right politically.
1: Um it's become a a bit of a political football, right? So at different times, we've had, you know, we've had plenty of elections recently, and uh, parties have proposed different things. But often, it's been uh, a cut in tuition fees has been one of the things, or complete uh, abolition of tuition fees <laughs> was something that Corbyn was proposing at uh, the, the the last election. So yeah, I think you're right that just the atmosphere was always going to be okay. This is something that's going to happen, and you're right that it's not just the the fee cut. So that sounds, you know, straight away you think that is good for students. Lower fees, uh, lower accumulated debt. And that's uh, so that sounds good, and that is good. And in fact, it's one of the three things that um is recommending that are definitely good for students in terms of reducing the total debt that they accrue by the time they graduate. So it was a part of a kind of broader package of uh, recommendations around um, higher education finance. So the the giveaways for students are, are the fee cut. Um, it's also they've recommended to reduce the interest rate at the moment students take out the loans and start accruing interest on those loans while they're studying for those 3 years so already by the time you graduate it's not just the money you borrowed it's interest on that on that okay so the recommendation is that's it should go to zero right mm. so you, you, you your debt will grow with just with inflation okay but the actual real value of the debt won't grow at all so that's another thing that's going to put Uh, less debt on the students Um, and also the introduction of maintenance grants the reintroduction of maintenance grants Uh, that's another thing that's going to be positive for student finance so this is uh, for students particularly uh, it's going to affect those from uh, lower income backgrounds they're going to become eligible again for maintenance grants of, of £3,000, uh, a maximum of £3,000 per year. So this has been something that's kind of flip-flopped about a bit with uh, policy over recent years. We had grants and they were abolished Then we brought them back in and abolished. And so uh, this is kind of money given directly. It's You don't have to take a loan, you don't have to pay it back. This is grants.
0: I think it's something that I think is important. You know, there's there's quite a fair bit of evidence to suggest that you know, people from different socio-economic backgrounds have got a different level of risk aversion, yeah. and you know, the 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 abolition of the maintenance grants of this essentially free three thousand pounds per year, you know, uh, really had an impact on, on 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 poorer students, who would suddenly be faced with taking out this huge loan, you know, nine times three. Uh, and and graduating with this really significant debt
1: and that's just the tuition fee then yeah.
0: right so the tuition fees you're nine nine thousand pounds or nine thousand two fifty
1: times three but then you add on the maintenance loans so we had this situation where the mm. poorest students graduated with the most debt because they had access to more loans uh, but that was exactly what it was is it was taking out a loan and start accruing debt on this uh interest debt on it kind of straight away so that was Again, politically, that felt like something that really needed to change.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it's not all good news, is it, for the students? It's not all good news. So as we, as we said before,
1: these changes overall have to be um, cost neutral, right? So here's a, here's a kind of giveaway to the students, these, these three things. Uh, so money has to be kind of brought back uh, into the system somehow. So the way that uh, it's proposed to do that is to increase uh, the amount of time the debt is being repaid so at the moment you graduate you start earning uh, start earning money and when you uh, earn over a certain amount twenty five thousand pounds a year once your salary goes above that you start paying back and you start paying back uh, a certain amount nine percent of anything you're earning over twenty five thousand pounds and you pay that for thirty years right so and at the end of thirty years after you've graduated Whatever you've paid back, if you haven't paid it all back, the rest just get, you know, the government says, okay, we'll write that off, you're done. But the change uh, that August's proposing is that, actually, we don't say 30 years, we say 40 years. <laughs> so it's um, you know it's we much longer time. yeah we give with the one hand but we take yeah. away with the other. So forty years before it all gets written off, mm. um, and also you start paying back a bit earlier. So instead of twenty five thousand pounds, it's when you are earning above twenty three thousand pounds. So that they chose that number because that is the kind of median earnings. Uh, in this country. And so the idea is, right, once you're earning more than the average person or more than kind of half of the country, it becomes kind of, um, you're benefiting from your higher education. um, And so we start paying back
0: at that point. So I guess once you integrate this all out, uh, are there any kind of clear winners or losers in terms of students? Are some paying more, are some paying less?
1: That's right. Yeah. So Overall, if you look at the kind of government's balance sheet and so um, the Institute for Fiscal Studies have done a lot of kind of analysis of okay, what's the impact on the government, what's the impact on finances and all this sort of thing. And overall the system doesn't really as as was the remit, it doesn't really change the, the total cost, right? But it does divide up the cost between students slightly differently and the government. And within students, who who wins and who loses is kind of some clear uh, winners and losers. So Overall, student get debt will be lower. Okay, so at the moment, the mean debt, when the average debt when people graduate, is about fifty thousand yeah, pounds. That's kind yeah. of the average. That should go down to about thirty-five thousand pounds. So overall, students should have have lower debt. But the system is a little bit uh, regressive now, in the sense that the real winners here are the high earners, right? So people who graduate go on to earn. A lot of money.
0: A lot of money. They pay off the £36,000 much quicker.
1: They pay it off uh, quicker because they're, they're borrowing less, because the tuition fees yeah. is, is less, and also the interest rate, they're not accruing that interest while they're studying. So they, they're they the people who benefit uh, most, uh, whereas the lower and the middle earners, so people who go on to kind of low earning and, and kind of middle earning jobs. And, and are really kind of
0: paying it off over the 40 years.
1: So they're paying it off over the 40 years. Um, And they start paying, you know, everyone starts paying a bit earlier. And so those uh, are the people who are going to be paying off uh, more. And at the moment, you know, only 20% of students are forecast to pay off all of their debt, right? So it's the top earning 20% of students. That figure is projected to be 50% of students. Okay. So half of students still won't pay off all their debt over the entire time. And for them, it really, you know, it doesn't make so much difference, right? If you never paid it off before uh, and you're still not, you know, paying it all off, you're just, you know, you're just paying uh, every month and at the end having the rest written off. But now 50% of students um, or graduates, I should say, 50% are forecast to pay off um, all of their student debt. So that's, that is that's where you see it's those middle and lower earners who are the ones who are paying you know quite a lot more
0: but it's not immediately obvious right and and it's something you really have to take all the recommendations together to sort of figure that out in the first place do you think that even though you know it is slightly regressive the new financial model do you think there's still um, do you think overall students would be happier with the model
1: yeah i think i mean
0: it's regressive
1: it's more regressive compared with the old system right so what you see is that it's it really is the people at the top who are benefiting the the high earners who who benefit and it's the people in the middle who are paying more however what you've got to kind of remember is that overall the entire system is very progressive right because of all these debt write-offs right so the people who are high earners and pay off their debt they pay a lot more in repayments than the people who are middle and, and lower earners okay so overall the system is is progressive it's just that this proposed change makes it slightly less progressive than it was before yeah. okay so yeah I mean I think it is important these changes psychologically if we think about and we've talked before about access and we talk about social mobility and, and widening participation in higher education and I think it's really important the psychology okay so some of the um, evidence from The report, some of the evidence that Olga was looking at, they found uh, that people prefer, so students prefer higher monthly graduate repayments and a longer repayment period, okay? They'd rather have that in return for lower fees and a lower rate of interest. So psychologically, even though kind of middle and and lower earners, even though uh, they might be paying uh, earlier and paying for longer, they kind of psychologically prefer that given that they have a lower interest rate and lower fees
0: overall yeah and so, so this goes back to this headline finding idea so you know yeah. it doesn't matter even though once you you know calculate it all out not that much will have changed actually the headline drop in tuition fees will have a kind of psychological positive impact
1: absolutely and as you're saying you know people have debt aversion and risk aversion and we know that this is kind of socially graded so our research suggests that people from uh, poorer backgrounds are less happy about taking on debt, right? Even though this student debt is different, you know, it's income contingent. You pay, as, as we said, you pay a certain amount off um, when you're earning over a certain amount. And if you're not earning over that, you don't pay anything. So there's, it's kind of insured. And in fact, that's one of the things as well that Orga's recommending is that the language is really important. We change this language from kind of loans and debts because that psychologically already, that's putting people off. Um, and we should talk about a kind of student contribution system yeah. We, we need to change the language because as you say psychologically this really makes a difference to people even if uh, the total amount they're paying is more than it would have been yeah. the fact that they they're taking on lower debt and uh, The fact that it's a lower interest rate really m- makes a difference So if we think about access and participation this could be really important the psychological effect of you know It's a it's a lower um, tuition fee, and you're not taking on so much debt
0: so Matt Taking all of this together, what do you think is the potential impact on social mobility? I noticed that the word social mobility was actually used a lot in this report, but always quite in generic terms.
1: So I think, you know, we've talked about these different elements of what the recommendations are. I think the important thing is that the system as proposed would be set up so it's no longer the poorest students who are graduating with the highest debts. And I think psychologically that's, that's really important. And the return of of maintenance grants that's really important, so potentially this has the potential to serve social mobility pretty well because if we think about what's important, getting people in and these things that have been putting p- people off, and we know that people do get put off by by debts and and that idea of interest and high tuition fees, and so there is potential there for this to be broadly uh, positive for social mobility
0: yeah, I think I would agree with you i mean i i, I personally think that, to me, what struck me more than this high-level high, high level headline stuff with, which relates to HE, Intuition fees, of course, what I think will have possibly a bigger impact on social mobility is this idea of, listen, let's really try and bring out the FE sector. Yeah. So a lot of the report goes on about further education, apprenticeships, technical education, and they're, they're kind of breaking with that mantra a little bit of keeping things cost-neutral, and they are actually really trying to push for more resourcing to go into uh, the other sector of tertiary education
1: yeah so I think as we said uh, at the start you know further education has been a bit of a kind of poor relation um, over the years and certainly in recent years the funding for further education has been kind of squeezed and squeezed and squeezed when you compare it with higher education but also when you compare it with other levels of education so primary secondary so August recommending quite a few things for further education, and one of them is is something we talked about in a in a previous show. The kind of how difficult the system is to navigate through. It's so many different routes, so yeah. many different qualifications. Sandra was talking about that. Sandra McNally was talking about this. That it's it's so difficult to try and navigate your way through that system, and so was recommending a kind of an overhaul and a simplification of of the the different qualifications that you get and at level four, level five. So these are somewhere between kind of A level level and uh, a kind 50s. of degree. Yeah, so a degree is like... Oh, sorry. yes, of A-levels yeah, so uh, is
0: kind of this grey area. This grey
1: area where you get kind of level 4, level 5 provision. I mean, we're talking about, I, I think probably most people, you know, what is level 4, what is level 5? We don't, you know, you what know is that it's exactly? not something. Yeah, we yeah. know where we are with A-levels. We know where we are with degrees. Yeah. But, again, this is part of the problem within the kind of further education system. We don't really know what these things uh, mean. But I
0: think, you know, we do know from some of the work that that people like Sandra have done, for example, that there are returns to these qualifications. You know, there are serious labour market returns. There's cash at the end of this to doing some of these qualifications and exiting into the labour market with level four and level five qualifications. Uh, And I think it was interesting when I read the org review, they clearly picked up on that. And they're saying, listen, we want to get more people into level four and level five doing these kind of courses. We want these to be more, you know, uh, uh, recognized in society. And uh, they've also proposed, you know, a kind of a funding mechanism to try and get more access to these kind of courses to this kind of education.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So one of the big proposals is to, as well as adding more money in, so yeah, taking a billion pounds capital injection into the further education system to kind of make up for some of this lost funding that it's had over the years um but also yeah to put it on a level footing with higher education in terms of uh, how students are financed so uh, making a kind of unified system for student finance so allowing access to the sorts of loans we've been talking about for higher education make those available for further education and also to give people like a a lifelong learning account kind of idea so that people can draw on um access to funding throughout their life for training at different times and different levels, which I think you've you've worked on, right?
0: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, actually. And um, I was looking back over an old paper I wrote uh, a couple of years ago now, which was looking at the returns to lifelong learning and adult learning. And one of the things, just going back over the paper again, which struck me is that, you know, when you look at the age distribution of where qualifications occur, what you see, of course, is a big spike at 16. That's when people walk out with GCSEs, big spike at 18 A-levels big spike at 21, undergraduate degree, another big spike at 22, you get your postgraduate degrees. And then you kind of think, as a layman, you would think, all right, it just sort of you know, drops of a cliff and that's it. But actually, that's completely not the case. There's a kind of a second hump that occurs into the late 20s. And you, what you see is that lots of people are kind of reskilling, upskilling, retraining, getting new types of qualifications in their 30s and 40s and even 50s. And there's a significant amount of people who do what we would call classical adult learning, lifelong learning. So the idea that you know, kind of education stops at uh, you know 22 or whatever, it's 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 completely false. There is an interesting question: what are these qualifications? So often you'll find that some of these are kind of short professional type qualifications, maybe retraining on a software program, getting a certificate for that, rather than your classical kind of you know, oh I'm 40, I want to do another degree. Uh, that kind of yeah. thing. But there's a lot of activity. And I was just going through some of the numbers of this salt paper. You know, around, if you're looking at adults, and I think we define that as people over 25 with some labor market experience, around 5% of adults with, within a given year will gain some sort of new qualification.
1: That's a that's a big number, right? It's a big I number. didn't think it was gonna be that high.
0: That's a big number. So it's between five it's been going up, so it's about five or something. now okay, the data's a bit old now, so I'm not quite sure what, you know, the latest state of play is. But you know, even when we were looking at this, that was a big number. So for this to be recognized in the report, I think it's absolutely critical. Um and um and more importantly, the paper we wrote was looking at the returns to this. And so that's thinking about does this then have a positive
1: impact on exactly. your earnings or your employment exactly. prospects?
0: So it, can you have a second chance? Yeah. As an adult, if you did something wrong in your life or whatever, you know, can you go back into the education market, get a qualification and then get a tangible hard cash return from it? Now, I wish I could say here yes, you know, go do it. As always, the answer is a bit no, more nuanced. In some cases, yes, there is quite a lot of positive evidence, uh, especially level four, level five qualifications, which is just what we were talking about. Um, but it kind of differs a little bit by, by, by gender. Also, it kind of differs a little bit where you are. It's not absolutely clear. And what we did find, one part of our contribution was a bit methodological, which I don't want to go into now, but it does matter kind of where you come from. So this idea is, if you control for people's behavior before they obtain the learning, then that does change the outcome a little bit. So often, the learning is a result of something happening to people in their labor market position. So maybe they lost a job or something, is it? Maybe they lost a job, or maybe their job was declining anyway, or they knew. So the unfortunate thing for us as economists and statisticians is that people can think, this is the most terrible thing in (laughs) statistics, because people can think about the future. And if you think about the future, you can make decisions now based on events in the future. And that, and that, that, that causes all sorts of problems for us in terms of identification. But if you do control for that, uh, it does become, unfortunately, a much of a nuanced story. But it's good, I think, holistically looking at this, looking at what we wrote, and looking at what the org Review r- writes. I think it's absolutely critical that this section of the population, which is a huge section of the population, yep. isn't forgotten and has access. And I think this is actually where you have another key influence on social mobility, you know, opportunities for people to get back on the ladder at a stage beyond, you know, 18. That's it. Uh, it's putting it on
1: a footing with financing to allow people to uh, access those qualifications, come back into learning, um, which at the moment just doesn't have the same funding as as higher education. So broadly, it should allow people to kind of match the skills that they have and the the skills that they want to develop with uh, access for learning and, and, and education. Not everyone wants to go to higher education right so 50 percent of young people don't go to higher education and so i think this is really important part of the conversation that we and it's something that's come out in in lots of the shows we've talked about previously is putting things on a more um equal footing uh and matching people to the place where they're going to learn and where they're going to benefit um the most but it's interesting you talk about you know the social mobility impact but maybe should we even be talking about social mobility anymore? There's a, a, a proposal um, from Jeremy Corbyn to we're no longer going to have social mobility as a, a policy goal. So maybe we should forget about even talking about this. Uh, what what was he talking about? Blasphemy.
0: Very clear. <laughs> 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 no, 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 no. I'm going to take that back. Um I think you're right. Okay. So what you're talking about is this idea of social justice that that, that yeah. Jeremy Corbyn mentioned recently. Now, that's been mentioned before. It's not a new idea. Now, it not being a new idea doesn't make it a bad idea. I think, to me, the way I read it is that we've had this sort of failure of the Social Mobility Commission and um, who all who resigned en masse sort of quite a while ago because there was this just massive policy failure at least they thought there was a massive policy failure and sort of changing social mobility in the uk and changing that whole narrative and i think you can agree with that to some extent and i think sort of perhaps rebranding it in terms of social justice putting a little bit more power into the commission and saying okay can hold ministers to account and can have a little bit more influence over policy is generally the right idea however it doesn't change the underlying concept so what do you call it social mobility or social justice or really whatever All of this comes down to this core concept of equality of opportunity. And often that's misunderstood. And unfortunately, it is something that politicians often misinterpret. And unfortunately, Jeremy Corbyn also did the same thing here. So I read that speech, and it is very much about inequality. So the the, the whole introduction to this notion of social justice, which invokes this kind of hard hitting, you know, there'll be judges going around, (laughs) you know, enforcing social justice (laughs) on people (laughs) and cities, you know. it comes from this idea that there's inequality and that you've got poor people and rich people and there's a difference between them in terms of income and wealth or whatever and there's inequality and that's a bad thing and uh, and, and that's been rising. And, I'm, I, and I don't want to get into the inequality debate where that has been rising over the last 10 years. That's a different issue. But that isn't social mobility. So it's no. very important here that social mobility is about the quality of opportunity. And if I ask you a question, do you think some people put in more effort into life than others it it's a bit of a loaded question but do you think some people bother more than others yeah
1: Oh, I, I mean you see that every day right so and yeah. that's just a f- feature of life some people have
0: uh, work harder than others I can certainly attest to that yeah, um, yeah. And, and it might be because they have different preferences so yeah. some people value money a lot some people don't um, whatever some people just want to sit in the beach and drink whatever uh, cocktails and relax uh, who knows the point is if you have different levels of effort And you multiply that by equality of opportunity, then inequality is the outcome of that. That is a fair level of inequality. So there's always going to be some inequality is what you're saying. Well, if people have different rates of effort, yes. Yeah. So if people are different, you're going to have inequality. Yeah. Because social mobility works. That's the key thing. Now... There's questions whether social mobility works and uh, all this kind of stuff. But it's really important to distinguish between these arguments about inequality and social mobility. And I'm afraid that politicians always get sucked into the inequality debate rather than the social mobility debate. And even Auger, although Auger mentioned social mobility many, many times, he never there is no social mobility policy. That's the important thing. There is no one policy that can fix these problems. And often... Our analysis of social mobility is done with hindsight over many, many years, if not decades worth of data. So there are no short-term fixes to this.
1: And I think you're right that the problem is that the debate, as you say, often is very, very narrow in, in terms of what is social mobility. And Jeremy Corbyn kind of fell into this with this proposal saying that um, defining social mobility is poor, bright kids doing well. right? But that's you know, that's like saying uh, gender equality is about having more women on the boards of FTSE 100 companies, okay? That's just a very tiny kind of slither of what social mobility is about. And it's about this equality of opportunity to make sure that wherever you start in life, whoever your parents are, whatever your income is, you have the opportunities, uh, the same opportunities, you're not shut off from things, right? So that doesn't matter whether you're a poor uh, but really bright kid or a poor child whose average brightness and or whoever you are it's making sure that people have the same kind of access to opportunities people aren't cut off um and nick clegg always said you know the birth is never destiny uh, and that's that's the idea so if we define it down just to okay we need more poor kids to go to oxbridge then yeah of course that's not something that we should be directing all this policy effort at it's we need a much broader package. And as you say, there's no one policy, right? There's a lot of areas of government that have to be joined up. Uh, and the idea of giving a bit more power to a, a beefed up commission, um, that's got to be a, a good thing. But
0: I think it is a good thing. However, will the public or even politicians recognize that in the short term? Probably not. So, like I said, I think social mobility is, 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 is a long game. And, and the results from that are also come in the long term. Uh, So, let's see where that goes. So, one thing we should think about,
1: actually, is these are recommendations, right? They're not necessarily going to be taken up by the
0: government. Um, So, what what do you think with the politics of all this? Do you think this will actually ever come to pass? I think that's a very good question. There's a lot of recommendations here. I'd be very surprised if all of them were picked up. Possibly some of them will. But you have to remember, politics could have decided this already themselves years ago often one of the reasons why people do reviews, politicians do reviews, uh, is to stall, to wait for time. And this is a classic scenario here where there's a very difficult concept to to deal with, with many big, difficult questions to answer. There's winners and losers, like we've discussed. Um, I think, given the current political climate, where we are still with some Brexit uncertainty, I would be very surprised if in the short run we we saw... a lot of these recommendations turned into policies. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, I'm I'm loath to say our entire discussion may prove <laughs> to be pointless, but um, it's that's the reality. We just don't know what uh, what will get implemented. I think, as we talked about, you know, the kind of political mood music has been kind of fees need to be reduced, and you know, we need to change a few things to make that workable. I think, so I think that will think, happen. Yeah, and so, but yeah, whether and all I the
0: age H- F- want fee will which is, I think is the more important one. This is
1: the danger that the kind of the further education continues to be the, the the part that loses out. But we'll
0: we'll have to see. Yeah, well, we'll discuss it next time. Uh Matt, you've been a fantastic guest today. <laughs> well, <laughs> so have I. Likewise. Yeah. yeah, very good. So that's all for this episode of Policy Matters. I'm Franz Buscher.
1: and I'm Matt Dixon.
0: And we'll be back soon with more